Welcome to Season 4 of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. This podcast is all about preventing burnout in the workplace by changing the systems that impact how mums show up at work. And sometimes those systems are part of our social infrastructure outside of work. In the first three seasons of the podcast, I interviewed researchers, DEI and HR experts, coaches and mental health experts. We talked a lot about individual change because that is what we think is within our control. But if we stop there, the collective change that we need will not happen. Only 13% of male senior managers spend time in caregiving compared to 52% of female senior managers. This season, I am therefore interviewing dads. Unless dads are more active participants in the home and more supportive leaders at work, working mums will continue to struggle, burn out, and miss out on leadership opportunities. Men have to make room for women to lead at work, and women have to make room for men to lead in the home. We can't make change alone, so I want to learn more about how we can support men to become active participants in the home and role models for caregiving leaders at work. And when mums thrive, the world benefits. This week, I am learning from Aaron Coleman, who is the founder and CEO of Fitterbase, a 10-year-old technology company processing sensor data for scientists. He has two daughters who have made him more aware of the need for paid parental leave and flexible schedules, even in the confines of a small business. Aaron recently took a three-month sabbatical this year to reset from surviving as a business during COVID, and in the process took time to reflect on what he had achieved. I hope you can learn as much from this conversation as I did. I'm Aaron Coleman, founder and CEO of Fitabase and a dad, and I have two kids. Adina is eight and Maya three, and my wife, Jessica, I am excited to be here. Great. Thank you so much for being here. And I often quote you as being one of the dads that already listened to the show. And I've appreciated hearing about your perspective and the conversations we've had. And now that I'm doing this whole season on dads, I'm really excited to air that perspective you have. So the first thing I'm going to ask you about today is in fact this sabbatical that you took recently and listeners probably know from me saying before that yes I took a leave of absence when I experienced burnout I was experiencing suicide ideation and I took three months leave of absence and that definitely helped me it reset my nervous system it really helped me control my stress but it didn't necessarily help me cope with going back into the same work environment afterwards ultimately it helped me in the moment but maybe i could have done different things during that sabbatical to help me in the long term and i definitely am seeing so many articles so much conversation about companies saying take a sabbatical we offer sabbaticals sabbaticals is what you need to prevent burnout. And so I'm not sure that's actually the answer. Because again, when you reduce your stress, and you then go back into the office and say, ah, this is where the stress is coming from, it doesn't necessarily help corporations retain their employees. 
but you're in a different situation. You are an entrepreneur, and I think it's very unheard of to hear of an entrepreneur taking a sabbatical. So go ahead, tell us about how you made it happen, and then how it went, and what you're feeling now in terms of pros and cons of doing that. Yeah, I had actually thought about doing that like around year seven of Fitabase. And here we are at year 10. Year seven kind of got away from us. We had some, I think, pretty exciting new product initiatives that I wanted to at least see going. And then, of course, March of 2020 hit. And then everything changed in a way where it's just another one of those times when I had to put the company on my back and get through. So we sell um, a software called Fitabase to universities. And we help them collect data from Fitbit, Garmin type devices, consumer devices. And so running a business where literally every single university in the world closes its doors simultaneously at the same time, where you get paid mostly when new studies start was not conducive to me taking a sabbatical. If you can imagine, I think everybody had it hard during the beginnings and all of the lockdown periods, but there is a unique sort of, I think, head nod that business owners give each other, just if they were able to keep their businesses afloat through. So that was extremely stressful. I don't think I slept for four months. And I saw so many of the things that I'm usually able to keep together just completely deteriorate. And it was like little things. Jessica would ask me, how come I put the milk creamer back in the cupboard instead of the refrigerator? And that's very unlike me because one of my superpowers that I know I'm good at is in a crisis or with like many different things going on, like I can compartmentalize. I know nothing about medicine or hospitals, but like in the scenarios where we've been in crisis situations with family, I'm the guy you want there because it's kind of like the matrix. Everything just slows down for me. And I can say, okay, the doctor comes in and says, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this scan. If it reveals this, then we're going to go to this street and we're going to bring these doctors in. And then if it doesn't, we're going to go this way. We're going to try this medicine. And I can keep all of that in my head. And then we're all together as a family. And then they leave and everybody's like, what are we doing next? Oh, they're going to come in at three o'clock. That's all I remember. I was like, three o'clock, we're going to do this. We're going to take it down this. We're going to see this. Like I can keep all that stuff really well. And those kind of abilities in business help you. Like you have contingencies and all of that. I just saw that erode and just fall. Just for the first time, I think I saw myself able to just not keep those things together at all. And I think since then, I think, so first of all, we did come out of COVID lockdowns. Business-wise, we were successful, but it was 7P loans because the banks were not dealing with us smaller businesses very fairly. I poured hundreds of thousands of dollars into the business to keep it going, just to keep the, everybody on staff and salaries and everybody needs their healthcare. This is like important. The sabbatical for me really was at a point where I felt like things are in a good spot and I can really take the time off. But I still, two years later, just needed to exhale. And I think that was the word, like whenever I was like sitting there, literally on the beach, the book, I'm thinking to myself, what the hell am I doing? The mantra in my mind was just exhale. That's your job right now. And I saw you speak, I think an important reminder, you're talking SPM, was a reminder for me to get back to thinking about making that happen and the importance of it to prevent burnouts. I just, I made it happen. And I have a really great team around me now. We're a small company. We're six people, seven we're hiring. I have a really great team that I think We've built into kind of the idea of the company that everybody's got enough overlap where we can cover for each other. In between COVID and my sabbatical, I also had three <laughs> employees go out on maternity leave at the exact 
basically same moment. And that was quite fun and unexpected that everybody all of a sudden telling me that they were pregnant. We had one phone call, one Zoom call where uh, we actually found out, I knew it was two, and then the third one popped in and said, actually, I went out too. But that was something we could plan around. We had enough foresight, but I just, I needed time to just reconnect. The other thing I'll say is, and you talked about this too, you have feelings of maybe resentment or maybe disassociated from the things that you should be feeling about your job. I started a business from nothing. It was a guy burning through a savings account with a laptop and a co space. And I think if you told me 10 years ago, when I went back and looked at what my goals were for the company, I wrote them down and I've hit them and blown them away. And I think if you told me 10 years ago that we would be where we are today, I would have been ecstatic. I would have been like, wow, right on, man. And I just, I guess I got to 10 years and I was just like, nah, I just, I didn't feel like accomplished in a way that I, on paper, I should feel like we have been. And so yeah, I just, that was a problem. I just felt like, all right, yeah, take some time to let that sink in. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, if we lose that perspective. And that's why, although it's really important to be present and in the moment, we do need to look back and especially with your accomplishments, see how far you've come. And yeah, because we're always looking for the next win and not seeing how much we have already achieved. But in terms of, was there anything you particularly focused on during that time? Were you trying to do any personal development or growth work? Or were you just really trying to take a break? Were you trying to really connect with the kids and the family? What are some of the things that you did in that time as a sabbatical do you think might have been most helpful? And like, how are you feeling now? What did it make you feel? What did it make you see? Yeah. So I think all those things, but maybe the two things that I really was focusing on was was my kids and how I see them because I was also still coming out of my oldest was in kindergarten when we pulled her out to do swimming school in the first grade and those were miserable that was me running out of calls and stressed with everything I was doing and then trying to do first grade common core math I can't think of a worse hell and she hated it and I hated it and and I think with my youngest what I would realized was I was really only with her during kind of her worst hours, 5, 30, 6 o'clock at night when I get home and then she's ready for bed at that point, grumpy. Like that 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock hour is like the sweet spot. That's like when she is, she's rested, she's just had breakfast, she's just giggly and playful. And I missed that. I didn't know, I didn't even know that. I was like not on the clock. So that was one thing. The other thing is before I went out, I was doing some reading. So one book that I really liked is Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. The New York Times bestseller, things on Oprah and the circuits a while ago. But that book, I sought that book out because I really felt like I do feel like as someone who's loved technology forever, like second grade, I was like programming 286 computers. I think we've really found ourselves societally in a spot where these tools are working against us in a lot of ways. And we talked about you're a behavior change scientist, I'll tell you. Just the sheer interruption factor. And there's so much information. Like I remember 10 years ago when I sat down to start Vitabase, like I could sit down at the laptop with a copy at 9 a.m. and I would blink and it would be two o'clock. And then I scramble, get some food real quick and I get right back on. And I would like, I'd have to pull myself away at 5.30. I love those days. Like I loved, and even days since, I'm not just programming days when we're really like product focused. Like we're building all this new smartwatch tooling that I really think is pretty cool and just oh this is amazing let's go show this like to everybody that we work with quickly because they're going to love it too like that kind of stuff is fewer and far between 
And I think in the book, what Johan proposes is, you know, think about anything you're really proud of in your life. Think about anything you've accomplished that you would point to. You did that um, probably in a state of flow where you were working in longer periods of time, where you were in that state of flow, you were engaged, you didn't have distractions. And we really built into the work world, into the way that we do meetings, the way in which we measured our success in business or personal life. It's become so fragmented to the point where, you know, he even as an author admits he can't read a full book anymore. It's hard for him to sit down and read a cover to cover book. I do find myself in the same place. And I, as a business owner, I guard my employees' time quite a bit. I want, especially anybody who's doing anything creative, to have long periods of time to really sit down and engage with the more creative or detail-oriented problems. That's where meaningful work happens. And talk to some people, and then you ask them, where do you do that meaningful work? Where it's meaningful to you. And they say, well, I can start doing that about five o'clock when my meetings are done. And I've, as much as I've guarded that for myself, I did find myself also kind of still bogged down by that. So I turned off, I turned off all the push notifications on my phone. I started reading longer form things and I tried to essentially do things in a slower, longer form flow state, projects around the house. And that's what's really good for my brain. I think, I think it's good for everybody's brain. And that was interesting because, again, I see focus as being such an important part of a burnout prevention strategy for companies because I agree not only because of the creativity that it creates and therefore your innovation, but also just that that reduction of stress and, and really being able to then think more deeply of, about things. And I was listening to some of the new tools that people are thinking of using in the more digital remote world, and particularly thinking about Gen Z and attention span. And I love that we're recreating how we work. But that part of me was like, yeah, but all these sort of quick messages or quick conversations or quick things is no, that's why my podcast is an hour long, because I really want to have deep conversations with people. And I would sometimes say, okay, we need a half day retreat for this, because I actually want to get at the root causes of problems, really unpack situations, not just have this kind of peripheral level thinking or immediate response or reactive thinking to things. I want us to really be proactive. So yeah, that that's definitely, I think is it is so important, even if those are longer periods that people actually are doing clear brainstorming together. But I think, again, there's so much that we can make asynchronous and keep out of meetings so that the, the number of meetings are less. And yeah, it's crazy. Some of the statistics on the increase in meetings and increase in time in meetings. Yeah, it's really awful. And it's created, I think, societally, a very coarse discourse. And I think it's just bled into the workspace. It's bled into how people within small teams or large organizations talk to each other too. And I think it adds to some of the ways in which people just structurally, the more they get involved in their company, the more they burn out. And it's tough. I think that's a reality in tech and larger themes of high growth companies. It's imposed these frameworks of the way in which we consume and disseminate information organizationally. And it's counterproductive. 
And again, I think there's also some situations, I don't necessarily agree that all startups and when you're in that crazy growth phase, I'm talking with CEOs who specifically have not taken that mindset into their startup. But at least if you're going into a startup like that, you know, that's what it's going to be. And it's going to be, for example, short term. But I think that was the issue too, particularly with something like academia or even medicine. You go into these careers because of your personality type, which is that you are somewhat perfectionistic, but then you go into these environments that are such high stress and potentially toxic environments. And again, if you were going to be a stockbroker and you just knew it was a couple of years and that's what you expected, that's fine. But these are lifelong careers where you're exposed to this like stress, even though that's not the type of person or the deal that you thought you were signing up for. So I think, again, that's what's so important about burnout is this sort of person environment fit yeah but but let me ask you so you talk to these ceos and they say it's short going to be in this high growth mode but is it really ever because i think i think it's the tone you set at the beginnings of a company and i think if you're going to establish a team and an ethos and the way you build a company it sticks and i don't think you have the luxury of saying this is the period where we're going to all be stressed and burned out. and then we're going to get over to the promised lands and the garden of eden and it's going to be because the thing that i do think what we have found ourselves in is in a very similar way to the shrinking middle class of economic society. We found that in businesses too. And I very intentionally did not take venture capital to start a tech company. I was really influenced by David Hannemeyer Henson and uh, Jason Freed of Basecamp 37 Signals, who built a really great bootstrap company and talk about all the benefits of which not going for a high growth company where your metrics are not normal business metrics. It's just getting to the next huge milestone set so you can raise another big round of funding until you finally get to your IPO, sell stocks that the venture capitalists and the founders get to sell. And then hopefully they stay afloat in the way where the employees finally get to exercise their stock options for their extremely high challenge of contributing 80-hour work weeks. And usually those stock options aren't actually materialized in the way that they should. So I actually reject the premise that institutions are able to manage that as a temporary state. And I think you set the tone early on. I totally agree. And to be honest, when I'm listening to what leaders and CEOs of large companies are doing, change is constant. Sitting still in a business is stagnating. And I'm trying to develop some leadership training around this because, again, my whole thing is change and and leading through change, being comfortable with change, because you understand the change process, but also using change for good in terms of creating paradigm shifting change, transformational change in companies. But a CEO of a large global organization is constantly in a state of change. So I agree, growth and change are an absolutely part of business. And yeah, that I agree. The culture is so important to set from the outset. And as you say, that comes from a founder and all those things. So yeah, let's talk a little bit more about any other burnout management or stress management techniques that you've used. Because I know you had mentioned that when we met at the last conference, like after you've been to a conference where you're the salesperson and you're having to interact with all these clients that you then take more of a rest after that. 
Yeah, I love it. I love setting up the booth. I love for four days, just talking to our customers and showing them the new stuff we're working. Sometimes I'll grab my laptop and just, Hey, come check this out. But I'm exhausted at the end of it. And I really am an introvert. I'm an artificial extrovert at those events. And I can do it for so long, but like I get home and I'm freaking exhausted. And so are the members of my team to some extent. Yeah. Especially a lot of these conferences end on Saturday, we got to take Monday off or any days that you were working that bled into the weekend. If you don't want to take Monday off, take Friday off. Give everybody permission to do that. And I think generally speaking, again, I think 40 hours is enough. And I've said that and I borrowed that from other entrepreneurs too. And I model that. I really don't work more than 40 hours and our Slack channels and our emails are ghost towns after hours. We've really come to a place where work and home have bled together in a way that is just, I don't think it's good for business. You had a post a few weeks ago on LinkedIn where we go through, I think, some of the things that are correct about high turnover costs and the ways in which employers like endless meetings and everything that we know is bad long-term for companies. But we know this stuff. Like, So why are we not implementing them? Again, I'm more of a systems guy. I'm definitely a business guy at this point. And we've just decided... I think and it goes back to this shrinking middle class of businesses. We're going to model everything after the Facebooks and Googles and these humongous tech and, and biotech and fintech type companies. And, you know, that's the way it is, but it's not great for business. Turnover costs are very expensive for companies. I can tell you that personally. But we don't even factor that, right, into the cost of anything. And yeah, I just, I think in terms of ways in which I manage burnout company-wise is look at it as a real liability on the balance sheet. And if you think of it that way, then you think about it differently. I also think a lot about reserve capacity in personally and in organizationally. So if you're burning everybody, think of, you know, the tachometer on an, on an engine, if you're burning everybody at red all the time, there is no passing lane, right? You have no reserve capacity to dig into, to pass somebody. And in business, things come up, right? If you plan too far ahead and you've locked yourself into a plan, a lot of times we do have long-term roadmaps. We don't have dates on those roadmaps because sometimes opportunities come along or a crisis comes along and we have to move things around. And part of the ability to do that is that everybody is not operating all the time in barometer pegged to the red section. If you run a company where that's the case, that's a liability for the company. It's an outlier an individual also because they're not recharging at night. They're not getting a break on the weekends. You're not able to react quickly and maybe your competitors are. I do really care about everybody who works for me. I care about their um, success personally and professionally. That's also just dollars and cents. I just don't think it's good for business. That's so important to hear. Yeah, let's maybe talk a little bit then about, like you mentioned, you had mums going out on maternity leave. Let's talk about what you do think about how to support mums having jobs in technology more and what you think that could look like. Yeah, so I'll say this is an evolution for me. When I first started the company, in fact, we didn't have a parental leave policy until about six months before anybody got pregnant here. But I realized... I've made it a priority to make sure that I am hiring in a way that is most inclusive to women in tech. In fact, let me spend a second there. I'd hired programmers before and I finally I posted a job post that I've been using and I just, I'd had it. I just, I was not getting any women applicants, none. Like 
So I posted it to Facebook and one of our former colleagues, a female programmer from our lab, a little lab, she chimed in on Facebook and she's like, it's probably something wrong with your job post. Let me see that. And she pointed me to a study, which was that typically women will only apply if they have almost everything on your list. Whereas men will apply if they have you know, seven out of 10 things or something. I forget the guy. I was like, oh, okay. That makes sense. So she said, like, strip it down to what is your actual core thing? Because we build into so what we do is a lot of teaching. Like, I think I'm pretty good at teaching and the stuff we want people to learn is all cutting edge anyways. So they're not going to come in knowing it. Why put it on there? That had an immediate effect. And actually we got a phenomenal hire out of that. It was a woman who's still with me today and since become a mom and I've really had the pleasure of working with her and watching her just incredibly learn and grow and become an amazing technical programmer. I would have missed that. So when it came time, to, as everybody's getting a little older and I talk and people had to think about having families, I'm like, shit, I probably need to get a maternity leave policy. And I looked at what was out there. I looked at what Facebook does and what other companies do. And I had gone through this and we already had our kids. And so I knew at least from that experience that, you know, this needs a lot of support. And every kid is different. Like we had a really tough time with the first one with for not being able to nurse. And we just went through like months of hell there. And the second one was super easy. So everybody's different. And we crafted a policy. I engaged, first of all, I, I did engage, I think some thoughtful input from my team and I budgeted for what I thought we could do. And we put together <clears throat> a policy that had by its core, like a 16 week paid, but then there was other pieces of it, like flexibility. So what does like a phase back look like? And some of the things you talked about, which was really helpful. Do you want to be checked in? So we did like, for example, we Slack. So we had a Slack channel where I didn't want somebody to have to go through literally the entire Slack history. But it's if you have time and you just want to break, because I remember actually liking having just quick outlet of escape during those months. Just let me think about something else that my brain. So we had like a single Slack channel that was like catch up. So if there's anything that we did that we felt like they may want to know about, if they have a second and they just want to peruse, that's the one channel to go to. Maybe at the end of it, there's 10 things but, and if they had any input or they just felt like it, check this on your first day back, that's fine too. I think that was helpful. I think people like that. The ability to say, okay, well, actually, I don't want to come back full time. I want to basically come back a little earlier, but then I want to stretch it to like half time and make that the last like a half time month. And you don't have to tell me ahead of time as we got closer, you know, we had that kind of a check-in meeting to see how it's going and people exercised that option or didn't. But I think it was helpful to have that too, because it is really stark, go from nothing and back in. And for conferences, fund milk shipping, because if we ask you to travel, we're asking you to leave. First of all, I think it's important that you not assume anybody's not going to want to do that. I didn't, and everybody did. In fact, I think it was a nice escape for them, as you've said before, you get the hotel room and a quiet space, but we pay for that milk store service. So I think it's really cool. And I do my best to be receptive. And I think you also had talked about that option of how do you find potential job sharing opportunities for the mums that don't want to work full time and you are struggling somewhat, especially in tech, to be able to find a pool of people who were out there in under sort of normal, say, hiring systems to be able to fill the other parts of these jobs. So that was just a practical challenge you were having, even though you wanted to support it. Yeah, I do have a mom now who's part time and that was something she told me about that she just, she knew that 
she was going to, and was I okay with that? And I said, absolutely, we're going to, we'll figure it out. And obviously I had to go back and dollars and cents and it, it wasn't on my radar, but we made it work. I do think the future of work looks a lot more expansive than the way we have it. I think 20, 30 hours a week, you might find really great candidates, really great employees who they can't give you after hours or, but they can really do an amazing job with their best 20 hours of the week. And actually, I think if you can accommodate that, it's a pretty amazing value for the business as well. But you know, I think that's coming. I saw there was like the Suzuki factory in because Michigan. They opened it up essentially during the hours that were like right after drop-off at the local school and then right before pickup. And because they couldn't find people. And a new shift, like this very deliberate, here's a parent who have the drop-off times. And they got this amazing influx of very talented people who would never meet the demographic for people on an assembly line for, for motorcycle engines, but were super happy in that role. And it's, I don't know, I just, I think the future of work looks a little bit different than anything we've seen so far. Exactly. Karen Tischler, who does job sharing, and she definitely had mentioned some organizations that are dedicated to finding job sharing. So in the US, it's called Work Muse, and that's an organization that's really out there to help companies find the job sharing options. Because again, the typical HR recruitment agencies aren't necessarily focused on those things. I say it's really hard to hire for that because we put out a post for it. It's very noisy, especially in the tech world. A lot of like contractors or people who want like their 20 hours to be after their 40 hours, like nights, weekends. And it's really hard to sort through. So I'll be curious to hear. Do you think there is a bridge that that still needs to happen for employers to really be able to hire for that? It was very challenging. That's great. It's really important that people hear that experience. So when you were during lockdown, I think... Jessica was also working full-time then. So you guys really partnered to do that at the time. So partly what did that look like? And also then since Jessica has left her, because again, an employer that's pretty hard to work for. How have you been that partner to her and supported her as a working mom to help prevent burnout? Yeah, Jessica got me in the public health area because she has her master's in public health. And your lab is hiring for this outside programmer role for this really fun study. I think we had a really good time working on that together. That was a lot of fun years. And the UC pay scales are terrible, almost everything, and they've not kept up. And we made the decision, like so many families that I've talked to have made the decision and said she was working a 20 hours, minimal 20 hours, because she had reduced to half time already at that point. And they were really flexible. I will say that she had a really great boss and he was really great about giving her the time flexibility, just as long as the work got done. But she was doing it like after hours, the kids to bed, we're exhausted. And once we got through where I could say, okay, we had some studies restarting, we had plugged, I think the worst of the revenue gap. I was relying on her healthcare, even though I was spending money on everybody else's healthcare here. Once we realized we weren't going to be able to find any kind of daycare, childcare, because COVID restrictions were still, and we didn't want to get it. We had already lost somebody at that point very close early on in our circles. We were very, very careful. We made a decision like most people did. It's just Jessica to stay home. Also the study she was on, the funding was done. So she went to move to a different study, which was not one that she was all that excited about anyways. And she'd already been thinking about it. And for us, I don't think we had as much trepidation about it. Maybe a different scenario because I had really relied on her during starting Fitabase. I left UCSD 
she had the health care, she had the salary, and I was the one who was burning the savings without any revenue for that first year or so. And I'm in a fortunate position where now it's like we did the dollars and cents on it, and it's just like, you know, it's a wash for her to keep doing that. Yeah. So we made that decision, and I think she's pretty happy. I think at the moment, she's keeping her options open, but I don't think we're in a particular rush to make a decision on that either. But it's definitely been an adjustment for both of us. I think as a dad, when that happens, you go from being on equal footing in terms of things like who has the authority to like say it's time for pajamas and get yourself in bed to not being the one who often says the directives. And I noticed that from my kids. They're like five, six of the day, we're hearing directives from mom who would come in that last two hours and be like, I'm saying it's time for bedtime. I don't want to put pajamas on tonight. Mom, I have to wear pajamas tonight. So mom's taking back control. That's crazy. Mom's the ultimate override. That's who they're used to hearing from. But that makes sense. Nothing even that necessarily she's intentionally doing, but just the kids now see her as the authority because they're with her more often. Yeah, that's so interesting. Such a fascinating perspective because so often I'm talking to dads who haven't been in who are presumed incompetent and then are trying to get their way in whereas you're really saying the opposite you guys had equal footing and now you're a little bit uh the rules of this game have changed a little bit. And I'm still figuring out. Yeah, let's transition since we're laughing a little bit here to um, asking dads for their favorite dad joke, although realizing that's a typical stereotype and that's terrible. I should be asking for your favorite dad recipe or your favorite dad bedtime story. But I think when we're having these conversations, they are challenging. And for me, just even in terms of my podcast journey, I was like, you know, what do I do to keep going with this podcast and enjoying it as much as possible? So I thought I want a bit more humor in my (laughs) episodes too. How do you measure how heavy a red hot chili pepper is? Give it away, give it away, give it away now. (laughs) Nice, nice. Yeah, your kids are not going to understand that one. (laughs) No, no. But your demographic, I think, will... We're good. Yeah. Last night I dreamed I was a muffler. I woke up exhausted. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. And the last one is, so what happens if you boil a funny bone? It becomes a laughing stock. (laughs) And that's humorous. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) And of course, I know what the humorous is, which bone it is, because my husband broke it when my daughter was like, still in diapers he couldn't change a diaper he couldn't pick her up or anything for like three months those damn broken bones <laughs> so yeah let's just end with a bit of a vision because you'll appreciate this is a, a an engineer is reverse engineering so describe to me like what is the future that you want for your kids and especially if you have two daughters and how you get there for them what is it that that you want them to have and what role do you think men and dads play in that that's a really great question and i think the more i survey you know i'm now 10 years into building something that i really am proud of i've taken time and one of the things that's given me is optionality at this point and i i always hated i think hearing from my parents or other grown-ups saying it's a blessing to be able to work to really work hard and to feel the sense of accomplishment i think that's true i think my kids will hate hearing that from me too and i don't want to hand them everything but i hope that when they find themselves 
good challenged, they see ways to branch and compound that. And when they see themselves in scenarios where they don't feel like are in the right spot, that they have optionality to move and reinvent themselves and continue to grow. And I fear that some of the things structurally we continue to build upon high cost of housing, inequalities and in, in the way in which we make accessible work to different people at different phases of life. Um, I hope the conversations you're having and then the ways in which we are starting to surface these things that we move in the right direction for them and to give our kids the ability to have the kind of optionality that even 10 years ago was so much more able to have. And I don't know if I've subscribed to, you know, love what you do, but be in a position where you can always have other things that you can dig into and learn and reinvent yourself to do. And I think we do that with better social safety nets and surfacing the ways in which work is working and not working for people and the way in which we give people meaningful satisfaction in their work as the prerequisite for creating roles and jobs within companies. It's a long-winded way of just saying that I hope that the things you're doing continue to make things accessible to the next generation as well. Thanks so much for listening today. Don't forget to check out my website, www.drjacquelinecurr.com for your free guides to prevent burnout. Would you like to join a cohort of women like yourself who want to disrupt the status quo, but are facing constant barriers and like you are beginning to wonder whether your approach will even gain traction? Have you experienced the supportive environment of executive group coaching, knowing you're not alone, and learning from others' mistakes and strategies, but you want to have more concrete goals and measures of progress. In conjunction with my leadership training, I'm facilitating small groups of women executives in peer learning collaboratives. This is a scientific process that it's used in medicine when important new recommendations need to be put into practice and there's likely to be pushback. Peer learning collaboratives leverage the supportive environment of group coaching, but with more targeted goals, greater accountability, and a quality improvement process that measures impact through learning cycles. In my training, you'll learn five new evidence-based strategies to support your leadership confidence and credibility, including how to use macro and micro root cause problem solving, how to create culture change through daily behavior change, and how to manage change and burnout. The peer learning collaboratives will provide a safe environment for you to put your new skills and strategies into action while learning from other women leading similar change efforts in their organizations. As you face barriers, we will problem solve together, empowering you to use adaptive experimental processes to help you build more resilient and informed solutions. A peer learning collaborative has three phases. In the co-design phase, members are brought together from diverse areas to establish buy-in and shared ownership. Building trust is important in this phase through shared values and expectations, shared vision and goals, open communication channels, and conflict resolution processes. In the collaborative learning phase, the group process is further solidified through peer empowerment, accountability partners, and celebrating small wins. 
The experimental process then starts with needs assessments, behavior targets, logic modeling, and plan, do, study, act cycles. In the adaptation and scale phase, lessons from the learning phase are translated into best practice guidelines and operational toolkits. Case studies are shared and champions are empowered to promote the findings and benefits to other units. How often do you find that you're trying to prevent the fires that men love to put out? You're spoiling their quick fixes and save the day hero-based approaches. Instead, you can see the forest and the trees. You want to disrupt the status quo with more collaborative, adaptable, long-term approaches that change how and why we work, bringing in flexibility and greater purpose. Yet your ideas are dismissed and the systems remain stuck, perpetuating bias and burnout. My training will give you the confidence and credibility to lead through change, manage change, and leverage change for transformational change. It will show you that your intuitive gendered intelligence is supported by tried and tested scientific frameworks, and it will provide you with more processes and tools to leverage that knowledge for greater impact and social good, based in public health science, behavior change science, and implementation science. Never before have we been through a global pandemic, racial reckoning, mental health epidemic, or great resignation. With a recession looming, post-pandemic stress levels are likely to remain high and resources low. Reports from Deloitte, Microsoft, Adeco, and Modern Health show that employees are dissatisfied with the current fix-the-person solutions and want to see transformational change in the organization itself. The need to lead with impact and provide return on investment is greater than ever in more uncertain, challenging, and complex times than ever. During these times of monumental change, there have been few guiding frameworks for leaders. There are not yet evidence-based solutions to these new emerging and urgent problems. So it's even more essential to use evidence-based processes to manage change. My behavior science tools will enable you to embrace complexity, lead through change, and manage the overwhelm. I want to help women leaders with a new playbook for compassionate and competent leadership in times of change and complexity, with evidence-based frameworks and strategies for moving beyond the status quo and leading the workforce of the future. When you join a peer learning collaborative, you'll gain confidence, camaraderie, and compassion for the challenges you face. We will use scientific tools and processes to guide our progress, use behavior change strategies to keep us on track and key indicators of change to evaluate our impact. Over a 12 week period, you'll set goals for the changes you want to see in your organization. You'll operationalize them as behaviors. You'll prepare your organization for change by creating a safe learning and growth culture. You'll roll out and measure what is working and why and develop ways to overcome barriers to change. You'll share your progress and challenges with the other executive women in your cohort so they can benefit from your experience, so they can provide support and ideas for solutions, and so that together you can exponentially grow your learning, leveraging each other's adaptations and innovations to similar problems. 
The training and cohorts will be available in 2023. In the meantime, I've created a free masterclass to introduce you to the five key strategies because change can be scary and you still might be uncertain about what it takes. My five evidence-based leadership strategies are leading through complexity with compassion, understanding root causes and solving macro and micro problems using the social ecological model and lessons from public health, leading with impact, identifying and operationalizing key change levers using behavior change science and strategies to create sustainable habits that change systems, leading with insight, creating the conditions for a culture of change using psychological safety, emotional intelligence, rewarding daily behaviors, and empowering role models. Leading with curiosity, finding and testing new solutions for employee wellness, retention, and belonging using peer learning collaboratives as a supportive and science-based process for managing change and developing resilience. Leading with clarity, understanding and managing multifaceted burnout so you and those you lead can thrive through change using multi-level burnout solutions. If you're ready to start on a new leadership journey, I look forward to guiding you through this in my online course and supporting you in a peer learning collaborative. Please direct message me to get access to the free masterclass or sign up for the 2023 start. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Close your eyes, feel the power